Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. 
like always, on Africa on the Move, we invite you to call in to share your views or your perspectives by calling in at 323-679-0841. And please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. We welcome you to participate by calling in. So like always, right now, we can get started with our party. And where we get started with our party is to introduce to you some of our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We'll start first with Brother Anthony, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary re- greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we will bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And my thing is all about institution building. Uh, one of the things, Brother Africa, you know, recently I read an article, and, you know, I'm always amazed at the the, um, the, the drive of the system in terms of its uh, unique desire to liquidate a large number of people in society. So I'm always amazed by that. One of the ways which is very um, apparent in terms of this drive to eliminate people in, in the U.S., uh, this article talks about the attack on Social Security. Um, uh, Social Security. Now, the article also talks about the Orange Amendments along with the Budget Director, Mick Mulvaney, plan to utilize the CPI chain to understate poverty, and in the process, understand need, understate the need for Social Security. Now, by utilizing the CPI chain, payouts to Social Security will be greatly cut. Uh, both individuals resorted to a particular strategy because the Orange Amendments attempt to cut billions of dollars from Social Security not likely to pass a democratically controlled House. Uh, this long precedent of showing Social Security, interestingly enough, will also depend on tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. Tax cuts for the wealthy would ensure budgetary deficits, making Social Security even more precarious. Now, this strategy would ensure government, excuse me, government would have no choice other than huge cuts to Social Security, ultimately justifying Social Security liquidation or its elimination entirely. Now, how is this, now how is this a fact? a factor in, in life in terms of new government policy. One of the things we're very, very clear on that when we talk about Social Security, we talk about a, a, a trust fund, which means uh, workers pay into the Social Security. And as such, uh, this payment to the Social Security doesn't pose any type of economic hardships for governmental budgets. Now, perhaps this elimination of Social Security is preferable because it would eliminate what little autonomy workers and the poor possess. This would impose a slave-like status on the populace, which would render <coughs> working people totally powerless. Now, the whole point is that what we like to believe, we like to believe that human beings have a, a right to exist. Well, we had a system in place for saying that human beings don't have a right to exist. So we have, we're at a loggerhead in terms of this, this, this dilemma. So it seems to me that all institutions in terms of fighting for the investment of humanity, then what was going to happen, we're going to succumb to the powers or the evil you know, of a system which is predicated on destruction of so much human life. So clearly we need institutions in terms of combating this evil, and without the institutions, our systems become that much more perilous in the society. And having said that, Brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me on the program. Thank you, Brother Haki. After Brother Haki, 
We now bring in Brother Zubari. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. This is Brother Jabari, resident researcher. First and foremost, happy Father's Day to all fathers and father figures out there. Your work is not in vain. Huge was an honor and privilege to be part of the program. I'm always appreciative and grateful for the opportunity. Peace. Thank you, Brother Zabari. Father Brother Zabari, we now will bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again this Father's Day for allowing me to be on your show. Thank you. Brother Africa. And I believe we have our sister on the line. We're just going to bring in briefly for a sucker. Let us say a, a few words. I think she probably will wish everybody a happy Father's Day. Sister Celine, welcome to Africa on the Move. Oh, thank you, Brother Lee. Thank you for, thank everybody this uh, morning. Thank you for African and the move. Thank you for everything that is happening in Africa. We thank God for what is happening because God knows the beginning and the end of everything. God is the starter and the finisher of our lives and he knows everything more than what we know because we can't do more than what we know, but God can do more than what we we can. Thank you, because God is taking care of every day at a time. Thank you. For us listening audience, we are live. There are sisters from Cameroon, Sister Celine. Okay, panelists, we'll go to each one of y'all and give you an opportunity to share with our listening audience in the world what's going on in your world and community Starting out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Uh, 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 s- several things. Um, there is an intensification of uh, tensions between Iran and the U.S. Uh, and uh, there's a concern it could jeopardize, uh, you know, oil prices. And uh, and you know there was an attack on a, 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 a on a ship off the coast of Iran recently, and uh, there's a lot of concern that companies might not be willing, you know, to um, you know use that area for shipment, therefore tricking uh, and an increase in fuel prices, and uh, also uh, affecting every. Uh, you know, all all other industrial and agricultural services as well, uh, and also there is uh, also the ongoing, uh, uh, you know, uh, recovery efforts in Southern Africa from uh, uh, the severe typhoon that hit uh, um, Mozambique in particular. And uh, some uh, and some other countries, uh, you know, in that uh, region. 
there is uh, there is very little information in the media about uh, you know uh, you know what's going on there currently. But it uh, bears uh, you know watching closely. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Let's go, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, Brother Africa, you know, I'm, uh, I have to sing the praises of a young sister by the name of Sky Hosey uh, in a town outside of L.A., uh, Los Angeles. Uh, she did a remarkable thing. She actually confronted the police. Uh, there was a situation where a young man who allegedly fit the description of a bank robber, and they were holding the guns on, on, you know, on him. And so she stopped, and she asked, you know, and she said to the cops, why are y'all holding all these guns on this young man? He's not armed. Why are you doing that? And she persisted to the extent that those police, all those same police officers, one of them trained the gun at her. And despite being, you know, she wasn't afraid. She continued to, to articulate, you know, that, uh, you know, that what, that what the police were doing was fundamentally unjust and that she run the risk of killing that young man. And even though they threatened her own life, she continued. And, in fact, she said to the cops, she said, listen, I suppose just like you can kill him, you're going to kill me too. So the mere fact that she had that kind of husband to, to stand up, you know, in, in the midst of that kind of danger and to articulate, you know, that the killing of an unarmed, you know, uh, African man uh, was simply unacceptable, speaks violence in terms of not only her tenacity, but in terms of her convictions in terms of, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And so we got to take our hats off to her because perhaps without her presence, that young man could have very easily been killed. Now keep in mind, this young man wasn't guilty of anything. But, of course, any time they said we fit the description, uh, we automatically treat, uh, treated as somehow we're, 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 we're criminals. Uh, so clearly, if, if she wasn't around, the possibility that this young man would scratch his nose or scratch his or, or rub his teary eyes, uh, he could find himself dead as a result of what they perceived as, you know, a sudden movement. So thank goodness the young sister was there, you know, you know, to talk to him, to encourage him, you know, he absolutely still, because she talked about the fact that her boyfriend was killed back in 2015 by the same cops. And so she was telling him, they will kill you. Please don't move. Please don't move. So my hat goes out to her in terms of her fortitude, you know, her tenacity, her bravery. I mean, to, to I mean to have, you know, those 45s pointed at you and persist in maintaining, you know, a sense of what is right. Uh, it speaks values in terms of what kind of character this woman possessed. So, again, I just wanted to uh, shout out to Sister uh, Sky Hosey in terms of, you know, her fortitude. Uh, thank you, Brother Going to... Brother Zabari, what's going on in your world and the community? All right, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, so recently Netflix has um, did a, there's been a documentary that was on Netflix about a gentleman named Clarence Avant. And Clarence Avant was a mover shaker in terms of the entertainment industry. And what most people don't know is he had a nickname called the Black Godfather, the who's who of high-profile black entertainers have rubbed elbows with him for a period of 50-plus years. And I was reading an article that was um, discussing that Mr. Avon was able to make get this kind of influence because there were certain elites that want him to put him in place to make sure that black entertainers were not going to do anything to tap into the radical element of the 60s. So this guy has been able to maintain a long influence in the popular um, culture arena in terms of um, black media because he was used to make sure that their music would be stymied and pacify the masses instead of enlightening them that a better tomorrow is possible. 
So it just goes to show how there's nothing that the elite will not use as a means of keeping um, certain people oppressed. Yeah, so Bobby, before we go to Sister, Brother Moses and Sister Aline, before we come to y'all two next, I was just looking at a documentary on Clarence Avant, and one of the things that stood out for me was, for someone who don't know nothing about him, if the documentary is true and factual, the first line of the documentary that comes out in the movie is that he was a gatekeeper. And I thought that would be interesting the word gatekeeper because the question comes, he's a gatekeeper for who? And as you um, go through the documentary, the end result is, you know, yes, he was a gatekeeper, not only for the system, I mean, more particular, it gave me the sense that he um, was propped up and had a close relationship uh, with, um, what would you call them, people who runs the government, so-called illegally, i.e. the mafia, et cetera. So I, I hear, hear what you're saying. I thought it would be interesting because during that time, I asked the question, how can one man, one African brother become that powerful and that influential? Because just so he was created. It was nothing that he arbitrarily did and, on his own. So I agree with you. I think that... And, but after, let me just add to further your point, the article that I was reading made a mention that during that time period, we're looking at the 60s, that over 70%, this is an interesting claim it makes, over 70% of entertainers, they said, were under the influence of organized crime in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I Whether it was breaking was... deals or just different facets of their livelihood. So that's very interesting in terms of how they at least make sure that those people who can uplift the masses, they try to find ways to keep their foot on their neck. Yeah, because I thought it was interesting when you talk about, look at, based upon that documentary, and that um, one thing he was often saying, you hear people say this all the time, who's not really committed to uh, uplifting their people is they run the line that, you know, they're about economic, making money. They ain't about no movement and no civil rights. It's about money. His whole thing was all about the numbers. So I, when you hear that kind of language, that kind of jargon, it sort of rings a bell in terms of that, in terms of these kind of individuals you need to be wary of. So um, that's interesting. But we'll come back to that later for those that discuss that. But let's go to Brother Moses and see what's going on in his world in the music community. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh you know, you, 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 and uh, Jabari were discussing this certain social phenomena. Uh, um, I went to see Shaft the other night. Uh, it's pretty raw, and uh, uh, anyway, you, what you were saying about the, the gentleman uh, reminded me of that movie uh, uh, and the lifestyles they try to depict. Um, Anyway, um, the, the certainly everything that's been mentioned has been good uh, to know about. Uh, I uh, think the, the census, the census has gone to the Supreme Court. You know that 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 section of the census where they're trying to add on citizenship, whether you're not or a citizen, um, is going to the Supreme Court. I think that should be interesting how they how they rule on that. Uh, uh, 
I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to that Sister Celine. Sister Celine, what's going on in your world in the community? Um, uh, Brother Ali, Brother Moses, Brother Haki, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be amongst you uh, this time. Um, thank everybody who is listening to my voice. Uh, things are not easy, you know what is going on in my world, what is going on in my country. Since last time that we started this program, it has not been easy in my country. I tell you, this week, these two weeks have been disturbed. Things are not moving. Oh, the only refinery in my country caught fire, I think, uh, almost two weeks ago, and we don't know what burnt it. And it has been disturbing us a lot. People are still being killed. People are still losing their houses. We are still losing our youth that are dying every day. People are being still being displaced. Their houses are burned. We don't know who is burning. We don't know whether they are the secessionists or the army that are burning. I tell you, the, the war is continuing. Oh, in the Lord... Boko Haram also uh, attacked many soldiers, and many of them were also killed. And they killed a lot of civilians, and houses were being burned. So it's not easy in our country. Uh, Every day the refugees are increasing. The internally displaced people are increasing. People are really suffering. So it's only God that will see us through because <clears throat> it isn't easy. It isn't easy. Um, yesterday, too, last week, as I told you that I was in Boya for the evaluation of our project, I came back to Yaoundé and my people complained. The people that I have around here complained that there was some little food there were some things that they gave to share for them, and uh, they were not giving. They were being marginalized by the people of their own country. So it's not easy. But I believe that one day, with our prayers that we are praying, God will bring a solution to this crisis. Because if there is the start of anything, then there is an end. Because one day is at a time, and every day has its own problems to carry. Whether they are good things or bad, every day has its own troubles to carry. So that's what is going on in my country. That's what is going on in my world. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Lee. is talking about the internal conditions that is taking place in Cameroon. There's, uh, you know, there's a struggle between various forces within that geographical border. Um, some uh, a segment that you have a close association with the French, the French side versus the Indian side segments and their interests, and there are elements within the people among the people who are fighting for certain people's interests to create destruction. And, and and doing all kind of things, create chaos. 
And, of course, these issues are not indicative of just Cameroon, but it's indicative of African countries all over the world. One of the questions we must ask is how can we come to resolve these issues as a people, as a global, one unified African people? And, audience, if you'd like to um, know more about what's going on in Cameroon and what have you, please feel free to contact our sister, and later on she will give you a contact number, email, something to address her. Because this is a problem that African people as a whole have to resolve. I don't think it can be able to resolve by one particular independent entity. So, Celine, we know we, we um we are with you and our brothers and sisters in Cameroon. We know the struggle will continue, but ultimately, like you stated, we will win. So, panelists, what I'm going to do right now is um, just talk a little bit about something you said earlier, brother Hackey, about Social Security, which I see that as being used as a tool to not only um, cripple the economy or the everyday brother and sister who has who has worked and put money into the system, but it seems like a, a bigger scheme of things to create uh, U.S. in terms of a, 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 a sub-living standard of most non-European countries. Um, how do you buy into that logic in terms of, you know, this whole question of there's a attempt to um, create a, a, a society, economy, where it clearly become an economy and not on a service servitude, but economy on just outright um, um, using people as a means to the end, the chaos intentionally. Yeah, yeah, no, no question about it. Uh, one of the things we have to understand is that when we talk about these kind of moves, like you know, trying to you know destroy Social Security, it's really is, it's not about economics; it's about power. And this is a quintessential point that people have to begin to understand. And because we're talking about power, uh, we understand that not only are they doing that in the United States, but they're doing that throughout the Western world. In fact, one of the things they do is called creative chaos. And matter of fact, part of that creative chaos is to economically to make sure that you create a scenario, create a narrative, which makes it virtually impossible for people to even have the basic kinds of things they need. And the process, what that does is consolidate the power of those in control. And so what they want, they want a world that is essentially uh, a world that's uh, awashed in, in, in poverty because it consolidates their power. And so it's no mistake that they're doing this. So the same way we see that happening in France, in Germany, England, uh, and so forth, we see it happening in the United States. And there's a reason for that. So all this is part of the grand strategy. Uh, one of the things uh, recently they talked about the fact that, you know, at least historically we talked about the fact we talked about the uh, the 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 century for a new the the, the the what is the um project for the new American century. Now they got a, a project for the Middle East, and so what's happening is that what they're doing is they're conveniently pitting one group against the other. They are intentionally facilitating this kind of division for the sole purpose in terms of getting people to kill each other, so as to undermine the economy, which means that it makes it possible for them to come in and get their resources very very cheap. But at the same token, more importantly, to impoverish the masses of people, which renders them powerless because they don't have the means in terms of actually doing anything, not even at the very basis like educating or, 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 or providing food for your children. So this is part of a global strategy, and this is what people have to understand. And so when people start talking about the economic reality, understand that all the stuff that they talk about economic is really contrived. 
None of it has anything to do in terms of economics. Because when you look at the American system of capitalism, if in fact the people really wanted to provide housing, education, um, uh, shelter, uh, uh, food for those things that people need to, to thrive, if they really wanted to, they really could. Recently, Trump talked about providing $15 billion to the farmers as a result of the so-called tariffs against China. Well, the thing is that these tariffs in themselves all designed in terms of undermining the global system. Uh, what they don't, don't want to deal with is the fact that China has a plan in terms of dealing with their strategy. They think that if they can just force China to, to force China to drive down the value of the currency, that what happens is that there is real profitability for investors who invest in China. And so what's going to happen, people will withdraw the money from the China economy, which means it's going to precipitate a global, a global demise, which is precisely what they want. Because they're in a position where they can arbitrarily create money. They don't have to, they don't have to think about it. They simply, with a stroke of a computer key, create money. And so, therefore, they, their position is that it's advantageous for us, you know, to create the scenario in which, you know, we essentially, you know, debilitate or destroy the global economy because we can survive when no other country can. Of course, that's, that's foolish logic, but that's what they're thinking. But clearly, this whole, the whole, the whole uh, uh, zeal toward, you know, impoverishing folks is a, is a big part of the, of the strategy, and it's a global strategy. And we've got to understand the nature of the beast when we start talking about economics. And Brother Anthony, I think with the confrontation between U.S. and Iran, um, it seems to be a continuation of creating a, a condition in which U.S. will dominate that whole region and give it under control to the Zionist state of Israel. And mm-hmm. Israel will become the master of that whole so-called Middle East. And the process of doing all of this, one of the things that has been lost um, to the world is the precious historical artifacts that are deliberately being stolen or being blown away so history as well can be rewritten. Again, it would throw the people off course for not knowing the truth. In order to know the truth be free, you have to understand what was the real history behind how things came to be. Because we who live in prison, we are a bad product of the past. So just your response to that particular um, assessment, Brother Anthony. I think that assessment is accurate. And I think um, there is, in, a, in addition to dominating the resources of Western Asia through, uh, uh, th- 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 through the process state of Israel, which is why it was created in that particular uh, uh, part of the world was to serve as a proxy for world imperialism, uh, there is a, a, an effort to, uh, to, to, to destroy any any remains of the roles of the role that Africa played in the, the development of that area. And uh and uh this is uh and uh this is also a um uh a, another method of uh, eliminating uh us by distorting our role in world history. And uh, you know, and 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 that's by design so that you know that Africans uh, at home and in the diaspora will not have any any recollection of our true history and of our contributions to uh, humanity. 
and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and it's uh, you know, it's one of the the the, the psychological weapons they use to keep us oppressed. Mm-hmm. And Brother Zabari, the historical clans of that, they have a documentary, I think it's on Netflix. If anybody can ask it to Netflix, I'll suggest they check it out. But in terms of when I think about his role, again, Brother Zabari, I think you saw they alluded to it. They understood, you know, the power of culture. Properly understanding culture and know how to use culture, culture can and must become a weapon that we must use as a tool to advance our people. So are there any other things you'd like to share with our listen audience around that phenomenon of the individual? Yes. And um, I invite the other panelists to respond to the point I'm about to convey as well. One thing we can learn from Mr. Abon's example is that he was the antithesis to um, us really moving forward in terms of having ownership where we make, we're making decisions. Because the interesting, when you look at it in terms of when he first rose to prominence, you have another example if you get a chance to look at the Sam Cooke documentary. And here Sam Cooke was a person that was moving us towards the um, route of complete liberation in terms of Sam Cooke owned the record label, owned the publishing company, uh, was literate, and he helped educate other artists, especially the artists signed to his label, so that they could fully know what they were capable of and know their rights. But Mr. Avant wanted us to integrate into an entertainment plantation where people, the likes of somebody help me out, I can't think of the gentleman that was big on Arista Records that signed a number of um, black artists. I cannot think of his name. Matter of fact, he's making money because he organized one of the Aretha Franklin um, concerts. Somebody please help me out. I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. Clyde Davies. Thank you. Glad, glad you. Yeah. Mr. Obama would want us to sign a deal with him because he would say that would be quick money, but he wouldn't tell you about how Clive Davis is basically going to take roughly just one or figure out like 70% of what you make, and if you don't tour, you're just going to be selling albums that are going to go into Mr. Davis's pocket by him being executive and you being the artist. So it's interesting how you had those different paths. Sam Cooke wants you to be liberated. Mr. Bond wants you to integrate into an entertainment plantation. Like I said, I invite the other panelists to respond as well. I don't know what to go, Anthony. You go. Yeah. I would. Uh, I would say that 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 your assessment is accurate, uh, Brother Javari. Uh, you know, you did, and um, you know, you, you have. Um, you know, uh, and those uh, you have those forces that want us to stay on the plantation. Uh, there are they are the uh, anti people, or they against the masses of the people that want to be able to uh, to be liberated and to advance, you know, uh, their culture and humanity. And uh, this has been a part of the class struggle in the, in the African community going back uh millennia you know and uh and it, and it's part of what caused uh the the mafia because there were some africans that colluded with uh uh the european uh traffickers uh to uh uh you know to to force the, the working masses of african people into slavery and uh and uh you know and one of the f- forgotten aspects of our, our history 
is that there were some Africans that profited off of that. So, uh, so, th- so this sort of thing has uh, a, a very long history, and um, you know, uh, uh, you know the uh, Avant Cook, uh, Sam Cook situation is a microcosm of that. Yeah, you know, I, I think this class of pension among African people is becoming more strident. I think the reason being is one of the things we talk about a decline of global capitalism. So which means that money is, is hard to come by, which means that if you're going to sell your soul as an African person, then you got to be extraordinary, you got to be extraordinary, extraordinary, and you know, be an extraordinary uh, individual in terms of your willingness, you know, to betray your folks. So the consequence, you have African people saying very outrageous kinds of things in terms of demeaning, humiliating their people. Are the guys that if, 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 if they're very good in terms of humiliating African folks, then somehow there's a payday at the end of the rainbow. And, of course, there is. So they're always going to look out. The Western nations are always going to look out for Africans who are confused, those Africans who are so self-hating, who are so opportunistic, that uh, they understand that if they, if they vilify African people hard enough, that somebody white is going to come along and say, okay, well, here's some money for you. Just keep doing what you're doing, and i keep paying you. And so they understand that. And that is in part impossible because of the fact that the overall economy is in decline. And so in order to catch the eye of the Western leadership, of the elite, then those Africans who sell their soul – got to be more outrageous in terms of, you know, the kind of things that they say. As a consequence, when you look at these so-called black conservatives, the kind of outrageous things they say in terms of their in terms of desire to, to, to dehumanize or to or to debilitate or to uh, destroy African people, they understand that if they weren't outrageous in terms of their presentation of African people, then there would be no money. And so, therefore, the, the, the overall this kind of economy encourages them to become more outrageous in terms of their presentation when they talk about African people. So clearly this question in terms of class is a question that we have to be concerned with. And when we see it, we have to understand precisely what it is. And we've got to understand the motivation of these kind of people. And clearly they do constitute a threat in community because what happens is that the Western nations give these people visibility. And so as a consequence, these people's voices are, are, are projected throughout the world. And this kind of foolishness, you know, gets played up. And so therefore they create this overall perception that, uh, that after people, in fact, uh, are happy, with their own oppression and that, we're, that, that we feel that we can't do anything but accept the oppression because we're not capable in terms of resolving the contradictions that we face. So clearly uh, when we talk about this class thing, we've got to understand that in part it has to do in terms of the decline of the global capitalism and desire of these, these, these opportunistic uh, African folks, you know, to capitalize. And Brother Africa, let me add another poignant fact that looks to how um, – Mr. Avant was an agent. In the article I read that was describing his role in the entertainment industry as keeping um, people in line, it is a known fact that Mr. Avant raised over $1 million for Bill Clinton's, one of Bill Clinton's um, political campaigns for president. And the thing you have to understand that that's a contradiction to the progression of African people because Bill Clinton was responsible for passing those draconian um, sentencing laws that worked adversely and incarcerated thousands upon thousands of African men to ridiculous sentences um, all throughout the U.S. He was a... He played Kibo Jabari in all of the... many of the major politicians uh, when it comes to making sure Africans gave their support to him. From Jimmy Carter to, um, to Barack Obama 
to uh, the one you just named, the Clintons. I mean, for one man had all that kind of so-called illusion or influence, clearly he, it was orchestrated. But someone else had something to say. Um, I want to say that um, until the Africans will realize that they are not supposed to be used by other people to fight against each other, because what is making Africa not to progress is that Africans don't realize when they are being used by the Western world or that they will use our brothers to fight against the other brothers. Oh, people want to be, uh, let me say, fighting for leadership, uh, forgetting to know that you are destroying your own brothers and sisters because you want to be a leader. Leadership is something that comes from God. It's not under a struggle. And when you fight to get the leadership that God has not crowned you, you will never last for long. You will not achieve what you want, your goal, because God has not blessed you there. That is what is uh, destroying uh, Africa. And the next thing that I see is that uh, until Africans will uh, overcome money, because if money continues to overcome you, overpower you, you will use that spirit to do things that are not good. You will use that spirit to do things that are terrible. You can kill the whole world because money has overpowered you. Money is to be used for development. Money is to be used to help other people. Money is to use uh, to create impact in the lives of other people. So if you allow yourself to overrule money, to overpower money, that's what will save Africans. Because they always think that if I can have the money of the whole world, Oh, I will be the richest man. I will be the most powerful man. And then I will rule. And then why do you want to see other people suffering when you accumulate the wealth of the country alone? Or you accumulate the wealth of your family alone? Or you accumulate wealth? People keep thinking of wealth. They forget thinking of the human beings. They forget thinking of development. They forget thinking of how they can build Africa if we can overpower money. If our people can overpower money instead of money overpowering them, then some of these things will be solved because people will not use us to fight against ourselves again. That's what is destroying Africa. You know, Brother Moses, I would like to get your critique in terms of what what you thought was the central um, major ideal or ideals from the movie dealing with Chef. I know there was uh, different generations of chefs, and one of the things that's going on throughout the world is that many African images, people who have had maybe a perception of positive African images, uh, they are now finding ways to undermine their perception of these positive images and redirect their images in the minds of our youth and our people. So I'm just curious in terms of your analysis of 
what was what did you see as the major um idea that they wanted to convey uh from this movie to our young people audience today? Well, um I think, you know reading W. E. B. Du Bois souls of black folk would help in this situation. Uh but there's uh just uh, a real uh, tragic situation, ultimately, uh, in terms of uh, uh, so I, I don't know what other measurement uh, the measurement I have right now is Christianity, uh, fathers mothers, children, et cetera, uh, and how it t- should take place. And uh, the situation is, in the Shaft movie is, is, uh, is, is, I don't know, reminds me of so with the Black Folk Savior. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the, but I, my sister, dry mother, please, my sister got me to go to that movie. I I haven't I didn't see the one in 2000. I know I saw the original one in back in the 70s. Uh, but uh, I I I don't know. This this is it's just entertainment ultimately. Uh, there is a message. Uh, 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 certainly, the church is not part of the message. That, as far as I can tell, uh, uh, but uh, it's an interesting movie, I guess. I mean, something to do, I suppose. Yeah, I just wonder why the industry saw a need to raise that image to, uh, and deal with this concept of the so-called image of a chef today versus what image they had previously produced in the past. Because uh, as right now, if you look at many African um, leaders, images, positive images of African people. You know, being undermined and being redefined and re and being attacked and being redefined by them. Uh, yes, brother. Uh, brother can, can I ask something? Brother yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah, can I? Yeah, sure. It seemed to to me, and um, you know, I, I I saw the movie. It seemed to glorify gangsterism, and mm-hmm. also it seemed to be to me. Uh, somewhat disrespectful of women in terms of the language that was used uh, throughout the movie. And, uh, you know, and the thing, and the thing about it though, it seemed like it, uh, it runs counter to some of, um, it's in the mold of the so-called black exploitation flicks of the seventies. Uh, Mm-hmm. Even though not not all the movies featuring Africans during the seventies were necessarily negative, but you know, but you had those uh, you know counter because Shaft is somewhat along the lines of a Superfly, if you will, mm-hmm. and that was and there was a remake of that a few years ago, if I recall, and uh, so it seems like uh, you know at the time when. Um, when 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 Africans are attacking each other uh, r- r- rather violently, that there is uh, there is an effort effort 
to resurrect gangsterism, you know, in our community. Not that it ever went away in the first place, but there seems to be an effort to try to make it more uh, palatable to our youth, which is is a, a serious concern. I think, I think to some extent. I think, I think to some extent. I think, I think to some extent. You know, um, you know, art imitates life sometimes. Uh, you know, clearly uh, this notion in terms of presenting African people as someone is, you know, you know, stereotypic terms, is something Hollywood has always done. And I, I, I think the latest movies is just a continuation of that. I think you have people who are who are not necessarily aware in terms of what's going on in the world. Or who are able position to actually analyze and critique, you know, the the issues of the day, but are more inclined to be concerned with things like vice, you know, in terms of the women, uh, the good times, and the party, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just a continuation of what Hollywood have always done in terms of this uh, uh, presentation of African people. Uh, I, I I think that um, you know to the extent that um, people embrace these kind of um, these kind of images. I think it speaks to the kind of uh, confusion that exists sometimes in the African community where we actually, those among us who actually believe that what was portrayed on the screen simplifies or epitomizes uh, the African uh, state of existence, you know, in, in, the, in the world. So I think it's a real, real problem, but I think that we, should be, we shouldn't be naive to think that, that Hollywood would, would veer from that script uh, because it served them well historically. Unless we as a public who um, pay to see these movies Unless we demand, uh, you know, a, a much more wholesome presentation of African people and characters on the screen, then we, we get what uh, then, we, then we get what Hollywood uh, wants to give us. So I think it was coming upon us to demand, you know, movies like Black Panther or those movies which which which, which, which deal with the political realities in terms of oppressed people. Uh, we need those kind of programs to reinforce that message. So, but but again, it's going to take us in terms of as a community. Working together to demand that uh, you know that uh, certain kind of images of of, of, of pervade uh, on portrayed on the screen. You know, panelists, I would like for a few minutes if y'all could talk, we could talk just a little bit about this whole concept of success. What is success and what it look like? Because as conditions get worse for our people. They will continue, continue, continually to use the mass media to define what success should look like and try to direct us in those areas. As of today, when y'all think about success, what does success look like from your perspective, panelists? Anyone is open. Who won't take first shot? Uh, success for me. Your ability to make money and be rich and famous, and that's what we should all strive for. Or success to be is to be very um, well known, popular, high high political positions, as high as becoming a president, while at the same time being put in position to kill hundreds of millions of your people around the world. What does success look like to y'all? From oh. Well, to me, success is being able uh, to use, uh, you know, uh, our use individual limited resources in order to help 
you know, advance uh, advance our people to try to make things uh, better for the generation that's coming up behind us. I think uh, I, I think that's a, a better uh, uh, a gauge. That's where I look at success uh, at this stage of my life. You know, to the extent that I'm able to use what skills, uh, resources that I've acquired as a result of the sacrifices that my ancestors made and my parents made for me to be able to get to this point, to be able to use that to try to advance, uh, you know, to improve conditions for the people that are coming up behind me. For that next generation, and uh, and so so for me, success is more about what you're able to give, rather than what you're able to take, you know, from uh, people. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think to to a large extent, success is going to um, be determined determined by to the extent that you you see legitimacy in the system. To the extent that you legitimize the system and think it's the greatest thing in the world, and of course success is defined in you know, very superficial terms. Uh, we talk about how much money you got, how big your house is, what kind of car you drive, how much money you got in a bank account, those kind of things. But clearly, when we when we think about those kind, in that sense, when we talk when we talk about success, one thing we got to keep in mind that none of those trappings uh, does anything in terms of empowering the people. And so, whereas you may, as an individual, doing well, the bottom line is that you got a system in place which, you know, uh, across the board uh, limits, you know, other people who look like you opportunity in terms of uh, doing great things with their lives. So in that context, you got to agree that uh, what you're doing is not really successful. What you're doing is counter-successful counter, counter because what you're doing is reinforcing those values, those minds, that mindset, which says that um, the, 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 way, the way upward, uh, upper mobility is defined by your bill in terms to look the other way when you see fundamental injustice inflict, you know, uh, the most vulnerable, you know, in society. I don't think on a human level anybody can define that as success. I think only in a very narrow capitalist kind of way can you define that as success. What sense does it make in terms of living in, living in a big house when then you're surrounded by poverty uh, or you're surrounded by people who don't have opportunity or you're surrounded by people, you know, who are, who are frustrated and angry because of the situation that they find themselves uh, con- uh, have to contend with? Uh, so I think that we have to have a much broader understanding in terms of what success is in the sense that what we can, let's, as Brother Anthony said, if we can create conditions to make sure that the brothers and sisters behind us grow up to be the best human beings they can be, then we can, sit, we can say, you know what, we were successful. When we can create the institutions, we create those conditions in the community that says that, you know, that we're going to help you in terms of achieving things like academic excellence, uh, things like in terms of respect for women, things like... Um, Things like uh, compassion, empathy for humanity. If we can instill those kind of values in human beings, then that is truly successful. Because in the long scheme of things, that is what's going to save the planet. That is what's going to save humanity. Not the superficial bullshit about what kind of car I got, what kind of car, I got, what kind of house I got, or how many, how much money I got in the bank account, how many women I got. None of that esoteric bullshit is going to do anything in terms of empowering people. It's not, it's not a damn thing in terms of saving the planet or empowering humanity. So we have to have a different definition in terms of what success is and reject that Western notion that, that uh, success is only measured in material, in material, in material kind of way. 
Pastor Bobby, Moses, Lane, what does the success look like to you? What does it look like? Certainly, uh, I would say that the ability to accomplish one's goal is, is considered success. And uh, one's goal is a very, very uh, idiosyncrasies of, of different peoples. Uh, it's, it differs. Uh, it's a philosophical problem, ultimately. I mean, a true meaning of life problem. And, uh, you know, as a, as a Marxist, uh, obviously serving the people is the greatest good uh, and uh, the greatest goal. And, and the more one's able to do that, the more accomplished one is. And that's, that's how I see it. Thank you. Um, I, I, I feel that, um, and I also believe that is uh, African Awareness Association or Plan. I don't know how to come down to Africa and hold some workshops or seminars and then train Africans on how to be able to identify and know when a problem is coming up, which is going to bring problems to them, which is going to bring them to killing themselves Okay, let me say to turn them on conflict management, how they can handle their own conflict. When there's a little conflict, they manage it so that it shouldn't reach the level of destruction, the level of killings and the level of destroying things. I think it will be better. So I think that that one can be a food for thought for African liberation party. Association, I am sorry, African Liberation Association. You know, for example, our last time we're talking of African Liberation Party Day, we're talking of the brain drain from Africa, how all our youth are going out. You know, when Africans go out, they don't remember where they came from. When they go, they don't remember that. We went out to study to bring back our knowledge, to develop our people. They when they will go out of uh, Africa to the Western world, or they see that everywhere is developed and they forget coming back. If our African uh, guys, if our African population, if those originated from Africa can remember that we have our own continent that we can develop. We have our own continent that we can come back to implement the know-how that we have had, the knowledge that we have had from out of our continent in our continent in order to for the continent to progress. It will help Africa. It will help us also the more. If we will really love ourselves, we know Oh, the Bible says that love covered a multitude of sins. That when you love somebody, you don't even see uh, the bad thing that the person has done. If we can have that, the real spirit of love, not pretentious, not pretentious love that you pretend that you love somebody and that you don't love the person, that will also solve most of the problems in Africa. Bobby, how does success look to you? 
Africa and brought to the Americas, fighting upon our rival and still fighting for our survival. But don't you be a buffalo soldier. Stop going around the world fighting for other people's interests. That's a little short note for our history, and we will continue to discuss the theme tonight as we move to our second segment of this program, where we discuss the theme, The Art of Killing and Destruction, Part 2. Now, when we talk about this article that was titled Trump Unlock Venezuela, a Timeline of U.S. Sanctions Violations Against Venezuela, it's a real interesting article because what it does is it talks about or show you how various tools, various tools, how they are used as a means to undermine, overthrow, and oppress a people and a nation. They also give you concrete examples of how policies manifest itself in terms of undermining people's economies. At the same time, it shows the sophistication of how you can heal and destroy people and environments, etc., all at the same time. So from this article to my panelists, I would like to get your take on the first question is, are the various tools that has tools that have been used to undermine and to try to overthrow the present government of Venezuela? What tools do you feel like has been the most effective in terms of doing this? I'll start off with you, Brother Anthony. Uh, as I would say the freezing of uh, Venezuela's uh, assets, uh, which uh, prevents Venezuela from being able uh, to purchase or exchange goods you know, from uh, that come from the from the labor of the people of Venezuela, because it is their work and labor that gets uh, the petroleum out of, out of the ground and uh, and prepares it for shipment to be refined to these, these various other products, and because the assets are frozen. Venezuelans cannot purchase uh, uh, food, medical supplies, and other uh, finished uh, manufactured goods. Now, as a result of uh, Venezuela being uh, a mono-resource economy, it had, uh, there had not been sufficient time to diversify its resources so that they could be self-producing in the, in terms of food, and uh, that is by design, and uh, that's something that uh, that uh, the Socialist Party of Venezuela has been trying to correct. But uh, with his vast as frozen, it's uh, it's uh, his hands are tied in terms of being able to develop economically. And uh, and you have this uh, class of uh, of uh, uh, the Venezuelan bourgeoisie that is siding with capitalist interests in order to exploit the resources and labor of Venezuela. 
Brother Haki, you know, one of the things in terms of when we talk about this question of, we just talking about this question of what success look like, and these different forms and models they may put in front of us to try to get our youth to become or to pursue a particular path down that area. I'm going to read a, a statement, and I'd like to, for you to respond to just this old question of how even they can take the illusion of so-called best among us and use that against the interests of our people. One of the things when we look at Venezuela, we must ask ourselves, what is Venezuela? Who are the people that make up Venezuela? And most of our people have no inkling that Venezuela is predominantly composed of African indigenous people. Those are our sisters and brothers. They are the same brothers and sisters as Brother Bob Marley said were taken from Africa and brought to the Americas. And if we don't know who we are, then we will lack to participate um, against our own self-interest and own oppression. Let me just read this article, and you tell me, I'd just like for you to respond to it. Now, one of the things from this article, it talks about how systematic and periodically this country has been putting together policies and making decisions to overthrow and undermine Venezuela from as far back as December 18, 2014. Well, it stated that on March the 8th, 2015, former U.S. President Barack Obama conversed Public Law 113-278 into Executive Order 13692, also known as the Obama Decree, which designated Caracas as an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, increasing his power to implement coercive measures used to intervene in Venezuela internal affairs and was renewed in March 2016. Your response to the part, that particular policy by the Barack Obama administration and why this, that policy is not a good policy for African people. Yeah, well, you know, it's a very, it's a very good question, Brother Africa. Uh, one of the things, you know, when you when you look at this, this, this black man, you know, who occupies the highest court in the highest uh, uh, office in the land, and when you look at that, certain expectations. Uh, certainly, when you talk about you know his circle of pressure, African people, then certainly you would have to concur, at least on some level, that Barack Obama should have understand the nature, you know, of, of oppression of African people. Certainly, as a community organizer in Chicago, he certainly should have understand the things like police brutality, you know, uh, babies freezing to death uh, because the parents can't afford heat. Uh, certainly should have been aware that those kind of things existed. But the mere fact that he was able to overlook all of that and and, and prop up the concerns, you know, of the system, uh, the system was not only uh, diametrically opposed to his survival as a, as a person of color, uh, but to actually embrace that system in terms of its uh, willingness to um, adversely impact on the economy of Venezuela to the extent that, that uh, you know, it, 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 it negatively impacts, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in that country. Now, the question is, what do these people do in the terms of constituting a, a serious threat to America? Well, they're doing absolutely nothing. Uh, in fact, what he's talking about, what Barack Obama was talking about, the fact that the mere fact that they have the audacity to innovate their own economic, political, and social systems uh, is an irritant to the U.S. because what it means 
is that the opportunity for exploitation of Venezuelan economy becomes less. And so in the mind of leaders like Barack Obama, that constitutes a real threat in terms of U.S. interests, namely that uh, there's no profit to be made if you can't exploit you know, other nations. So I think there is a bit of an irony uh, when, you, when, you, when you stop and think about it. And in the context of internally, when you think about Venezuela, you think about terms of principle being, you know, indigenous African, you know, people, uh, clearly, I, understand, I mean, the struggle is very, very intense. And the mere fact that uh, the U.S. haven't understand that, they also understood that those people were not in a position in terms of forming a real threat in terms of the interests of the United States. If, in fact, the United States were to deal with the people fairly economically, then they would be a trading partner like any other country. But the mere fact that the U.S. emphasis was all about exploitation of Venezuela led them down a different road in which they wanted to, you know, to to bring Venezuela to its need to to ensure the maximum amount of exploitation possible. So clearly, I think you're absolutely correct. I think when you look at this black man who who headed the United States, uh, who actually um, was the um, the forerunner in terms of these kind of policies on Venezuela, you have to scratch your head and say, huh, interesting. Uh, it couldn't have been easy on him as a person of color. I mean, he's not a dumb guy. I mean, he's an intellectual fellow, so he understands the nature in terms of oppression. He understands that. But the mere fact that he could just disregard all of that history and participate in terms of the rape of Venezuela, the exploitation of Venezuela, and not give the second thought, speaks values in terms of the kind of optimism that exists in the mind of these so-called black leaders once they've come in positions of power. Uh, so I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, that in itself is ironic, and, and, it's, and it's definitely a very difficult thing to understand for any person of color, position of power, to actually acquiesce, you know, to the powers that be when it's, when it's, when it's geared toward destruction of people who look just like you. You the same system that he protects, the same U.S. capitalist and prison system that he protects, that's the same system that is raising chaos against African people and people of humanity all over the world. And there are different institutions that they use to raise this chaos. For example, like the role of the bank. You know, in July 2016, the U.S. bank, Citibank, stopped issuing foreign currency accounts to Venezuela institutions in the U.S., affecting the central, the central bank of Venezuela, that's the BCV, which placing Venezuela with the highest financial risk in the world at 2,640 points, despite Caracas paying off $63.6 billion in external debt and obligation. So here you have a country trying to do the right thing, but yet they use the leverages of various institutions, such as the bank in this case, uh, undermining Venezuela ability to function. So, Shabari, when you when you read this article, um, what were some of the other contradictions that came to your mind about this 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 this, this, this whole scenario, how they are at war with Venezuela and trying to perceive, make us think Venezuela is the enemy to everyday working people? Well, one thing you have to take note of is how is J.P. Morgan going to speak on a debt that supposedly wasn't repaid yet? You look at the times, numerous times they were fine because of their um, finicky fiscal transactions and how they have ripped off a number of their customers. So you got to understand that 
this is clearly antithetical to humanity moving forward because of the makeup of these entities that are trying to attack a people who are trying to be progressive, self-sufficient, and set an example for the world and don't want to do anything but give to the world and create possibly to have some semblance of humanity and that be so individualistic and territorial. Okay. All the panelists would like to respond to that question? Yes. I uh I would add that uh it's an it's an example of how finance capital dominates the world economy, which is uh which is what imperialism is. The domination by capital of uh of uh, uh, uh of the world's economy. The fact that that, that uh that the US capitalists are using the banks in order to prevent Venezuela from conducting business transactions and therefore uh you know getting uh the the medic the, the medicines and food that it needs in order to heal and feed its people speaks to the power of uh of uh the domination of uh finance capital which characterizes imperialism and reading through this list of uh, sanctions gives a uh, 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 you know an example of how that works in when a country does not uh, comply to the dictates of uh, the forces of imperialism. Okay, you know, Brother Moses. One of the things this article points out is how. Embargoes, the U.S. embargo can become very effective by forcing other countries and nations to not to collaborate with Venezuela and other nations. Speaking about the U.S. impact as relates to its embargo against Venezuela, as a citizen of this country, what are some of the concerns you have as relates to the, the unjustness of these kind of um, policies, like this embargo, embargo that not only do they have against Venezuela, but they have against other countries, such as Cuba, North Korea, etc. What do you take from these kind of tools that have been used to oppress other countries? We, well, first of all, we have to understand that 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 ideologically, you know, capitalism is is allows you to see certain things in the world and not see certain other things in the world. Just ideo because of the ide the ideology that one if one defends it defends it then one's logic can only come up with less less embargo Venezuela, less less isolate Cuba, less you know, less I mean this is the mentality that uh, comes out of that ideology and you know? and uh and, you know, Barack Obama certainly, you know, was a capitalist. I mean, there's no question he never said anything different, so why should anybody assume anything different? And, um, you know, the the embargoes are, 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 are always hurt the people. I mean, like whether it's in Iran or whatever, uh, it's the people that that uh, suffer and uh, 
Um, I think it's always unjust. Thank you. Yeah, but you know the, the flip side. The flip, but you know the flip side of embargo, um, brother Robert, brother Moses, is that it also impacts on people in the United States. So often the, the media will present embargoes as something that inflict punishment on the on, on the other side of the world. But in fact, when you look in terms of the uh, the cost of living right here in America, the cost of food, that the, it, it it has an adverse impact on the masses of people right here in America. They're not going to tell you that, uh, but people can feel it. Uh, so clearly, you know, when you talk about these embargo policies, it undermines, you know, the, the very notion in terms of in terms of competitiveness or trade. Uh, so this notion in terms of bottom is nothing more than simply saying that it's all about power. And so the pursuit of power is all that matters. And so when they engage in embargoes and it impacts on American citizens, they don't care about that because that's not important. What is important is that the will of the ruling class prevails, and that is all that's important. And so we understand that every time we see these, these, these when we see when we see these these uh, tariffs and things of that ilk, you know, that being utilized, you know, by, the, by, by those in positions of power, understand that it has an adverse impact on people right in America. So it's not a good thing in terms of embargoes, use of tariffs, and so forth and so on. But they don't want to deal with that because the whole point is that it's not about the impact it has on people in this country. It's really about the power that they seek. And that's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with economics. You know, Paris, one of the contradictions in terms of this, this policy is that one of the sophisticated ways of how you can create destruction and kill people is by not allowing countries to get basic medical supplies, such as insulin, that your people may need to take care of their health needs. And this is one of the things that is going on in, in Venezuela, and they're doing it to other countries, such as Cuba, et cetera, Zimbabwe, et cetera. Now, we have empathy when it comes to when it comes to America complaining about how their citizens may have been attacked by somebody on the outside, but where the same kind of empathy comes when America exemplifies policies that have that kill millions of people just by denying the right to have basic materials to live as human beings, such as killing all of these youth, all these children, all these women who need basic medicines. That they no longer can get because of you have a few people want to come and dominate and run some other else resources. Where's the empathy come in from from that point of view, panelists? Your response to that, brother, brother, brother Haki. Brother, brother Africa, you know, um, you know, my position is that the U.S. public, the U.S. citizens, are complicitous in the kind of uh, criminal uh, foreign policy. Um, um, Demonstrated by the U.S. government, uh, there's no there's no getting around that. I know people will feign in ignorance. They're like, well, I'm not a, I don't I'm not aware the kind of devastation the U.S. is putting around the world, and because I don't I'm, because I'm ignorant and everything is okay. Well, I don't think ignorance is a valuable defense in terms of justifying, you know, uh, or being inactive or be uh, indifference to the kind of violence or the kind of criminality being inflicted upon the world by the U.S. government. Clearly, this foreign policy is out of control, uh, you know, and I, I think that, you know, one of the things that often, you know, I think this is important people understand this point. Often we talk about the U.S. being, um, what is the term, a um, uh, American exceptionalism. 
Well, people don't understand American exceptionalism has nothing in terms of doing with America being exceptional. What American exceptionalism historically meant was that back in the 30s, communists was surprised that given the fact, given how the government screwed its own people, that despite being screwed by its own government, that the people supported the government anyway. And so the American exceptionalism was that, damn, how ignorant are the American people to step out of here and allow themselves to be exploited and, 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 and take it with a smile. So I think the same kind of logic applies when we look at the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, when you look at this kind of devastation created, you know, um, you know, by the U.S., and I'm assuming that most people have a television. So even if they say ignorance and say, well, I don't, I'm not aware of what's going on, they have television. So on some level, they have computers. So on some level, they are aware of the kind of charges being committed by, you, by the United States. Uh, but what they don't understand is that ultimately all of this maneuvering by the United States or this particular foreign policy, they have to understand that all of this is for naught. Eventually, this is to come home, as Malcolm X would say, all of these maneuvers, all these strategies will come home to roost, which means that you're going to pay a price because of your inability in terms of fighting for those things which are right, those things which are humane, those things which are moral. And so there's a price to be paid by the American public because of your inaction. And this is what people have to begin to understand. Uh, people, for some reasons in America, are, are quite, as long as the perception is that you're doing it to people of color, then they're quite comfortable to be ignorant, or at least faint ignorance. Well, you know what? But at some point, you know, given the fact that you're all, while they're doing these horrible things around the world, they're also banked in the U.S. economy, which means that those same atrocities committed against people around the world have to come home because all to maintain control and all, the, all, of, and all of, for the system maintain some, some longevity in order for it to exist it has to inflict the same kind of violence and destruction against its own population. And this is what people don't understand. They think that they're doing something clever by supporting us or giving tacit support to U.S. foreign policy in terms of all its destructiveness. At what point do we learn history? At what point do we begin to understand you know, that we have no obligation but to stand up and fight against this insanity? Because we do so in our own self-interest. And this is why we have to do it. And stop thinking in the fact that this kind of pain inflicted by the U.S. on other countries in the world it somehow makes you immune from the same kind of pain. Ultimately, the same kind of pain is going to come here. It's important that we understand that fundamental historical fact. Could I add something you know, brother, to that, uh, Brother Africa? Yes, good, Brother Africa. I think, uh, I think uh, when uh, when uh, when uh, uh, add, could, I want to add to Haki's point that I think we have to consider also the power of propaganda in this picture also. And, uh, and uh, something else that, that and, and, and uh, the, the, the U.S. ruling class has very powerful propaganda tools at its disposal to make people go along with U.S. policy. Uh, uh, the first being the educational system that all that 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 a majority of citizens are subjected to, and another being the mass media, and uh, and uh, you know and uh, something that Malcolm X pointed out uh, many decades ago, uh, you know U.S. Uh, capitalist propaganda is so powerful that during World War II. They could uh, they could make the U.S. hate the Japanese uh, and 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 lo, lo, and, and uh, you know and and, and lo, lo, 
loved uh, the, 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 and the, the Germans and loved the Chinese. And uh, after World War II was over, they, uh, they changed their propaganda and made the U.S. Uh, uh, lo- loved, uh, love uh, the, 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 the Japanese and the Germans and hate the Chinese. So you know he, he you know he was uh, using an analysis to show how um, how how powerful uh, you know uh, imperialist propaganda is in terms of uh, you know making the U.S. people uh, uh, you know love or hate or despise whoever the ruling class wants. You know, brothers of Bobby and Moses, can y'all speak to this issue of this? Misconception and this outright lie on Venezuela not having a democratic elected president. Based on the last election, it's well documented that he received over 67% of the people vote. Whereas in the United States, we know that 60% of the people or more don't even participate in the election process, which means that. You are electing people inside the U.S. who may have no more than 20 or 30 percent of the so-called elected votes for those who can vote. So what do you all make of this big lie about this whole question of Maduro is not the legitimate president of Venezuela? Well, certainly it is just that, a lie. Um, you know, part of the, the bourgeois propaganda uh, machine, to discredit the government and justify a coup. Uh, the, 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 the elections took place, I believe, the, the Carter Institute, I believe, was there and, and, and certified the elections more or less. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the people who, like Trump, you know, Trump has, is in a world of his own. He makes... He makes up his version of reality and just spouts it out of his mouth and expects everybody to go along. If you don't go along, you got fake news. And so, uh, you know, this, this, you know, this is just propaganda. I mean, of course he was elected. Uh, there was no doubt about it when it when it happened. Uh, and uh, you know, this this reactionary movement is. Is bound to fail ultimately. Thank you. Yes, Bobby. Your response. It's always amazing how those who can't do try to teach others about something. So here it is. On one hand, you have a Western superpower who um, does a sham job of ensuring fair and um, impartial elections, criticize individuals who take great pride in being able to have elections where the majority of the people participate and their will is reflected. And because that Western superpower doesn't want to give legitimacy to those type of situations, that's why they try to impose their will on those nations because we've seen numerous examples whether it was Eris Eden Haiti or the situation with Maduro that also happened with um, Chavez, they're trying to impose their will to one impo- into 
put a despot into a position so that they can control them and take advantage of the resources and that which they find valuable. Okay, panelists, any final thoughts before we move to our next article dealing with the land question in Zimbabwe? Any final thoughts for anybody else on this article? Which is titled, and we encourage our listening audience to Google Trump Unlocked Venezuela, a timeline of U.S. sanctions, violations against Venezuela. Any other final thoughts, panelists? Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this cause, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this whole question of land questions in Zimbabwe and how does this relate to our theme of the art of killing and destruction, part two. You are listening to Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. So don't you will you come? 
Africa. We are discussing today's theme, The Art of Killing and Destruction, Part 2. As we talk about this theme, there's one of the things we want you to keep, want you to keep in mind, and that is when we talk about the art of killing and destruction, the West is very sophisticated in terms of how they do this and the form they take. So as we talk about these articles, we want to be uh, real conscious of the forms and the tools, the various tools that are used to carry out this, this, this mindset of killing and destroying nations and people. Right now, there was an interesting article titled Zimbabwe Land Question, No to White Farmers Compensation. And this article raised all kinds of issues that are pertinent not only to Africa, but to all oppressed people and nations as it relates to the thievery, the killing, and the robbery of the people, natural resources, and land, and how do you recapture it back. But before we talk about this article, I think if this is correct, and I don't know if my sister is in a position to talk, but we would like to may I'll say hello to our sister, Hattie Bond, who's one of our analysts and panelists. I think she's on the phone. She's been recovering from a sickness, and we know that at some point she will get strong again. I'm not quite sure if you can talk, but I would like to say, we would like to say at least hello to the sister, and let me see if I can bring her in for a few minutes to see if that's possible. Sister Hattie, can you hear us? Sister Hattie, call the 4381. Okay. Uh, we'd like to say hello to our sister, and she may not be in a position to talk, so we'll let her continue to listen to the forum, to the, to, to, to the forum today, and we'll be getting in touch with you very shortly. That was us. I believe that's our sister online. We'd like to continue her welcome. And a good well, um, good well soon message. Uh, panelists, this article, Zimbabwe Land Question, No to White Farmers and Compensation, it raises many issues. And the question becomes, how do you get your independence back operating under the present international system that has been designed and created by the West? Brother Anthony, take the lead, start out with us when we look at this particular article. It's raised the historical basis on why the Zimbabwe people have the right to get their resources back. At the same time, how do we as a nation deal with making policies that will seem more just for the people who are the rightful owners versus being forced and coerced by a system that want to continue to dominate us? So when you read this article, Brother Anthony, what are some of the major central points that you would like to um, share with our listening audience? Uh, sure. First off, uh, I would um, like to, uh, you know, share with the fact that this article does a good job, a very good historical analysis of this, is that Zimbabwe was uh, uh, was an, uh, an independent uh, uh, a geographical entity located uh, in southern Africa that had its own history, own people, and culture prior to the European incursion during the, during the uh, late 19th century. And that it was uh, European settler colonialists 
primarily from Britain that that came in and, and, and took over what 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 we know today as Zimbabwe. They took a majority of the arable land and uh, displaced the Africans that were living there. And um, as and real briefly, there was there was a, a, a war that lasted uh, several decades. And uh, because uh, the people were war weary, uh, uh, let's see some of the uh, some of the the fighting forces came to an agreement called the Lancaster Agreement, uh, brokered uh, by the U.S. between Britain and the uh, and the fighters in Zimbabwe uh, to grant Zimbabwe its independence. Under uh, 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 under the condition that the fighting was uh, would cease and that the Africans would recover their land through a willing buyer willing seller agreement, which the British reneged on uh, later uh, as, uh, as uh, later on in the eight during the eighties as time went by. Uh, some of the, some of the some of the veterans of the uh, Zimbabwe independence struggle uh, got fed up and started taking seizing uh, land that was uh, that was uh, occupied by these uh, European settlers, and uh, that pressured uh, the the Zimbabwe government. Uh, led by Zano PF to um, uh, to uh, enter a land distribution uh, arrangement in which the land was taken from the uh, settler colonialists and redistributed to the African masses. In response to this, uh, the U.S. and Britain uh, initiated a blockade of Zimbabwe uh, starting in the uh, 90s, and it continues to the present day. And uh, similar to the to the blockade against Venezuela, it made it uh, almost impossible for Zimbabwe, uh, you know, to um, you know use uh, its resources to purchase the finished uh, uh, manufactured products, agricultural products or medicines that are vital for, uh, you know, for people's survival. And, uh, there, and there is this, uh, and there's this ongoing struggle. It has brought about these destabilization in addition to the, uh, various natural disasters that have taken place in the Southern part of Africa recently. Okay, and one of the sticking points in terms of trying to resolve this, trying to resolve the contradiction is that there was a agreement called the Lancaster House Agreement, and in the agreement, England and later on, yes, was supposed to be responsible for compensating and creating conditions where that land would be, farms would be compensated and given certain, certain monies for the right for the Africans to, re, you know, acquire the land that's right for them, but they would dig on the agreement. So in that mm-hmm. sense, Brother Hockey, 
in that sense, Brother Hockey, who is to blame at this point in time in terms of who are the rightful owners and why should Zimbabwe compensate these European farmers, if any? Well, you know, um, you know, clearly the rightful owners are the indigenous people in Zimbabwe, the Africans in Zimbabwe. Uh, they're the right, right, rightful owners of that land. Uh, clearly, I think one of the problems was that I think uh, philosophically, I think what happened was that Zimbabweans, you know, try to do it according to the to the, to the policy of laws established by the UK, uh, which says that you know we're going to do this a particular way. I think they were optimistic uh, that the UK would actually follow through in terms of its promises. What it failed to recognize is that there's nothing honorable about the UK. Um, so to expect the UK government to actually deal honestly and above board, I think, is a little bit uh, disingenuous. So I think that um, I, I, I think that now that the Zimbabweans understand clearly, you know, that not only the, the land belongs to them, but you got to do what you got to do in terms of we, you know, reclaiming your sovereignty. Uh, I think that it's going to be very, very difficult, you know, and when we talk about the kind of um, uh, um, uh, punitive measures being imposed against Zimbabwe in terms of undermining its economy, that's what's expected. We we anticipate the UK and, 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 and uh, the US, two the, to the main uh, imperialist powers in the world, we can anticipate that they will do such a thing. So I think it's part of a growing pain. I think it's something that uh, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe has to deal with and understand that have incorporated into their thinking. I think more importantly, what they have to do, they have to begin to educate their people, make damn sure that the people understand this could be a long-term struggle. This is a protracted struggle, and that we got an adversary abroad who's going to do everything it can in terms of undermining, you know, our development. But we got to move. We got to move forward. And one way to certainly move forward is to reclaim that land and, and dispense with all this nonsense about, you know, trying to negotiate with these settler colonialists. Uh, clearly, you know, those who who want to stay in Zimbabwe are going to abide by the changes because they realize that there's a new thing in Zimbabwe. For those who are adamant that uh, they always are doing things, that this white, uh, white, um, this, this white privilege crap continues, uh, for those people who think like that, then it's best for them to understand clearly that it's best for you to be on your way to move to Australia or to back to the U.K. or wherever uh, and, and, and continue your, your, your racist BS uh, elsewhere, but it won't be tolerated in Zimbabwe. So I think Zimbabwe leadership got got it right. Uh, they have to pursue in terms of reclaiming that land because the land is is, is in fact um, so important in terms of your your uh, autonomy. So, and I will close with that, brother Africa. You know, brother Moses. Um, in order for the U.S. to lift their sanctions from Zimbabwe, based on his article. It seemed to be asking Zimbabwe to submit itself in a in a state of servitude, a state of slavery. Is that acceptable to you? No, um, I don't think Zimbabwe should be cowtowing to any of these Western imperialists. Uh, um, we need a unified Africa under scientific socialism. Uh, um, Zimbabwe. Is uh, you know struggling to to maintain their independence from foreign domination, and uh, this always angers the imperialists. And so it's nothing new. Uh, 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 
they've been under the gun, like Haiti was under the gun, as the article also points out, when Haiti being this, being an independent country and uh, trying to assert itself in the world and, uh, you know, the, the forces, the finance capital and the forces that be are determined they're going to explore it and, and, uh, and subjugate Haiti and just as, just as they're doing in Zimbabwe. And so, you know, lessons have to be learned from the past. Uh, imperialists are going to be imperialists, and we have to get we have to get a, a unified, uh, sound base around us if we're going to fight them off. Thank you. You know, Brother Anthony, when I look at this article, one of the things I recognize clearly is the importance and need for Pan-Africanism. I understand the concept of Pan-Africanism, Brother Anthony, where Africans come together as one, and we can collectively use our intellectual, financial, and our human resources to ensure the well-being of all of our people. If that is true, how would that be able to aid the present situation in Zimbabwe, Brother Anthony? How would you see that playing out if our people were more in line, more on board, with a closer reality of understanding the necessity for Pan-Africanism that would be that would put us in a position to defend our people, no matter where they are or nation. Well, uh, as Africa is presently carved up into these, uh, you know, into these uh, non-viable uh, geographical entities. It is not in a, in, a, in an adequate position to, to defend itself against the onslaught of uh, organized imperialism, and a unified uh, socialist Africa, with one uh, speaking with one political voice, and having an African High Command, would be able to defend itself. Against uh, you know uh, 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 the attacks by the imperialism, whatever form it takes. Right, uh, right now, it is not uh, 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 you know uh, Africa is too fragmented and divided, uh, you know to uh, you know you know to defend itself. So, as if Pan Africanism becomes a very important solution. To the problems faced by Africans in Zimbabwe, uh, uh, Cameroon, Congo, etc., and uh, that that is the only that is the ultimate solution, uh, uh, you know, to the problem. Uh, that in spite of our uh, in spite of whatever ethnic differences exist amongst us, wherever we are in the world, until Africa is united and liberated. Under a scientific socialist government, uh, Africans throughout the world uh, uh, lack a national home that could back them wherever they are in the world. You know, Brother Haki, one of the contradictions that is clearly shown when one takes on the political definition of being American being an African born and live in America, and you accept the definition of being an American, one can see the contradiction that it presents 
when it comes to U.S.-Africa relations, such as in Zimbabwe. As Africans who live in America, how could we affect this whole policy to make it more favorable and to eradicate it in terms of telling them to lift the sanctions off of Zimbabwe? Because it's a racist, unjust sanction. How could we affect this in the context of seeing ourselves as American? It, it, it creates a, a, a contradiction. And it lock us, us into being against our own interests. Your response to that analysis? Yeah, well, you're right. The problem is that if, in fact, you see yourself as American, then clearly uh, those things that you perceive as interests of America are primary. And if that's the case, then the suffering Africa has simply become a non-issue. And that is so unfortunate. I think, but if we understood the Africanness and we understand who we are as a people, then what will happen is that we have the resources in this country. If organized in terms of you know putting pressure to bear on the political status in terms of a redress can kind of policies that negatively impact uh, Zimbabwe, for example, uh, we have that we have we can do that, but we just have to have the consciousness. I think historically the situation in terms of us applying ourselves American has always been problematic. And, and, and this is, and I, and I go back to what Malcolm X said when he said, "Well, you can put a cat in a stove and bake it a biscuit." So those of us who believe that, in fact, simply because you were born here, and you know, um, that in fact that makes you American. But yet, when you look at the social economic status of African people in the society, and clearly something is happening. Those things, those negative uh, ratings in terms of social economic standing, suggest that even though you perceive yourself as American. Those who actually run this country don't necessarily see you as an American. I'm not even talking about the three-fifths of the three-fifths of human being in terms of the Constitution have yet to be amended. I'm talking about the fact fundamentally in terms of just social economic standing in society. And this is despite the fact, irrespective of your education level, your experience, irrespective of all of that stuff, you're still treated as someone less of a citizen. So it seems to me the intelligent thing to do is to understand that unless you have a strong, unified Africa, then this kind of treatment, this kind of abhorrent treatment administered to African people will continue unabated. And so irrespective of your, irrespective of how big your house is or how much money you make, how big your car is, the bottom line, the opportunities in terms of being truly all you can be are greatly jeopardized or greatly minimized you know, by a system that's adversely across the board, uh, diametrically opposed across the board, opposed to the interests of African people. So clearly we have to understand that the irony we understand as African people that we're be truly free, and we have to have a strong and unified Africa. Brother Moses, just give us your final thoughts on this article. What would you take from it? Well, um, I thought it was an interesting article. Uh, uh, it, it, it tried to do it in a brief, I think, five or six pages, or uh, sum up a lot of history that. You know, that obviously would take books to 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 uh, take on, and uh, but it does talk about you know uh, the situation in Zimbabwe and, and compares the the road ahead to the situation that went before in Haiti, and, and we're not wanting to repeat the same mistakes. Uh, they never got out of debt. They never. You know, there's no, uh, there's no uh, solution 
other than uh, reparation itself and uh, apologies and uh, recognizing the Holocaust that black people have gone through. And, uh, you know, this, 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 this was a pretty good article. Uh, uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. So, Anthony and Brother Haki, this article does raise some interesting um, phenomena that we're going to have to watch very closely in terms of models or how to deal with this question of um, regaining our independence and how we break away from the West, given the present international monetary system that we all function under. Now, this issue of the West can argue about compensation for oppressors but never argue about compensation for the ones that you, that you outright just took from. It's something that, you know, we can't, we can't hide, we can't duck, we have to deal with. And how how this takes place, I think will have impact on other nations and future generations in terms of how we address this important issue of the land question and who are the rightful owners and why we should be able to have our resources under control. Your response? Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, one of the characteristics of settler colonialism historically is that when settler colonialists come to take over a people's land, they have no intention of leaving. And that has been proven throughout history in the case of the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Israel. They tend that that they, they, they come with the intent to stay and exterminate the indigenous people that are there. So uh so uh so it, 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 it it's going to be a difficult fight, but it's necessary that we wage this with the intent of winning. And that can only be done through uh uh through Independent political mass organization, and uh, and ordinarily Pan Africanism, you know, you know, it stands to that problem. But uh, but it is uh, but it is going to be a hard battle, and we're going to have to do it, uh, you know, with our allies in order to, to defeat an enemy as well organized as imperialism is. Haki. What about the board yeah, states well, and the OAU and their lack of uh, being a support base of supporting Zimbabwe at a time of need? Because this is really a deliberate policy of genocide, attempted genocide, from my perspective. But go ahead, Brother Haki. Yeah, I, no, no one expects the African Union to do anything in terms of addressing the problems confronting Africa. One thing I will say, fortunately, uh, they did at least decided to create this common market uh, in, in Africa in which African states would, would increase the trade among themselves. That is a positive first step. So hopefully they'll do more of that. But ultimately what's going to happen, you have to have a central, a central bank to control your currency, to control your resources. Without the central bank, then you're at the mercy of West, you know, borrowing from the West, and that is unfortunate. Uh, but I think also, Brother Africa, I think that you know, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you talk about the kind of wholesale um, uh, raping of, of, the, of the land, of the you know stealing of African resources. 
Of course, you're right. No one ever talks about the hundreds of trillions of dollars the Western nations owe Africa for this for this plunder and this theft of their resources. Nobody ever talks about that. But they're quick to talk about the fact that uh, Zimbabwe owed the settler colonials money for land that was stolen from indigenous people. So clearly, uh, without a strong unified Africa, none of these issues can really be addressed. And until we receive that, until we get that strong unified social Africa, then pretty much Western nations are free to pick off individual African states uh, and bend them to their will, and which serves to destabilize the whole continent. So we have to have a strong united Africa with a central bank, uh, controlling on the currency, controlling these commodities, the price of these commodities, uh, in terms of uh, being only viable way in terms of you know Africa to fight back. Once that happens in Africa, we'll be on its way in terms of achieving the historical greatness uh, that's always been exhibited by by the great the great uh, continent of Africa. Okay, panelists, uh, we're done. We're gonna pause for the calls. When we come back, we'd like to have your final thoughts and send out a, a, a positive message to our sister Hattie. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Move. Once Africa is free, every African throughout the world will be free. 
So on that note, we're going to say in closing for this particular program, The Art of Killing Destruction, Part 2. We're going to ask our panelists to give us our final thoughts for the night. Start with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for the night. Yes, this has been my good show. Uh, um, I want to thank you once again for allowing me to get my two cents in. Um, uh, I think, you know, we do have to get organized and we do have to look beyond these simple solutions to problems and see the underlying laws and and uh, tr- tr- traits, uh, characteristics of, of governments and and come to the conclusion that scientific socialism is the answer. Uh, uh, I just leave it right there. Thank you. And Brother Moses, can you send out some love to our sister Hattie? Say a few words of encouragement. Yes. Yes, Sister Hattie, you've always been an educator, and it's time we need you. We need you here. We can learn from you still. Uh, your experiences, and so we send out all our love. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight, and send out some love to our sister Hattie. Certainly. Uh, my final thought for tonight is that the solution uh, to the attacks against us is is in our unification. We must get organized to liberate our homeland, Mother Africa. And Sister Hattie, get well soon. I wish you a speedy recovery. Stay strong. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother, I keep you to thoughts tonight and send out some love to our Sister Hattie. Yeah, of course, of course, we love Sister Hattie. You know, Sister Hattie, stop jiving around and coming back, you know. You know, you impose order, you know, when you're in the program. So we need you back. So get well. Uh, my final statement is just, um, you know, I think, you know, recently in France, they gave this guy, Eric Grogi, uh, they gave him, uh, they're talking about four months in prison, uh, supposed to be a leader of the uh, Yellow Vest. And, of course, uh, the, the Yellow Vest uh, doesn't have any formal uh, structure. So, therefore, to claim that this guy is some leader of the Yellow Vest speaks values in terms of strategy to divide the Yellow, the yellow Vest movement. So my words to Yellow Vest is remain strong, continue doing what you're doing, it's having an impact on the system. Um, to those in America, it's important that we get organized and we create similar kind of structures right here in America because the situation is becoming very, very critical. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to please unravel the matrix and have a good night. Uh, we'd like to thank the panelists and analysts for today's program. And as always, Thank you, the listening audience, for allowing us the opportunity to come to your home to speak truth to power and to value with some information. Hopefully that you can use it as a tool for liberation, to help liberate your people, and to help liberate humanity for all of the various forms of oppression. We encourage all comments and questions that you may have concerning this program, <coughs> excuse me, and others by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Until next time, let's all remember to subscribe to go forward with Apple, Apple You've been listening to Africa on the Move. We'll see you next week.
bom pra gente.
characterized by mutual respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice, 
That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine, Palestine needs, her freedom. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine. Thank you. 
and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to them, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems and you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been un civilized. Civilize yourself. ...of this brother, and he's still blazing a trail, evil to death. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero, all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture, Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966, when he hollered, Black Power! 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 Black power, 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 black power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, brother Kwame Duray, let's give it up, brother Kwame Duray.
Is that comfortable for you, brother? Thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who has uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our central committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. 
Those who participated were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association uh, Convention yeah so many of them the National Baptist Convention <laughs> as a matter of fact if my memory serves me correctly now and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. 
The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear 
as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day, when speaking to a sister who uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different. They have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just to run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. 
We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans. Of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. <laughs> you African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that the Africans born in America Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, it's a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news, those who's running for president can't. It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. No, nobody played but them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there on a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana, I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. 
After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died for people to become mayors. It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew it was a little girl. I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who's he? I said, he's the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. 
Moving to the All African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibility to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This united front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time, this was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan, Jordan, Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was, I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women, Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something, and the enemy will knock it down, and you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together, a lot of work, a lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life, really has, really has. 